One Week Season. WS fam, X and Hilo back again, bringing you week three uh, slate overview. Final thoughts before the slate kicks off. I want to start us off today with a quick moment of silence. Probably have all heard that uh, Mike Taglier uh, passed away late last night uh, peacefully. Uh, so we're going to start off with a quick moment of silence uh, for some thoughts and prayers sending his way to his wife, Tabby and to his two kids that he has survived by. All right, X, let's talk some football, man. I am ready. <laughs> All right. So what uh, we're going to start off in the same way that we uh, have been, have some had some good reviews with kind of the structure of this uh, final look podcast. So X, what are you seeing as kind of the one of the decision points or one of the major uh, keys in the road, we'll call it uh, for this slate? I think there's a couple. I think the as I'm seeing it play out right now, I think that most of the ownership is going to be expensive QB. One expensive running back, one cheaper, like mid-tier running back, mostly mid-range-ish receivers, um, and then kind of mid-range-ish tight end. And so it's like a kind of a mid-rangey week. There's just there's not a lot of like value that's jumping out at us as really strong. Um, and so that just leads us to these more balanced builds. Um, and I think that there's I think that hot the the expensive receivers are likely to be relatively lower owned and we're going to flock to Henry and Dalvin Cook, assuming he's playing, which, of course, is spoilers for a future bit of the show. So I think that's kind of the, the as I'm seeing the build play out. Um, and then, of course, from a game environment, right, the single highest owned game, if you add up all the individual ownership, looks to be uh, Tampa Bucks, which has two really good offenses, but also two really good defenses going head to head. Yeah, man, that's how I'm seeing the slate as well. Uh, and broke down as much in the end around which came out uh, this morning uh, but but pretty much nailed my thoughts on the slate overall so what what I guess leverage or how are we attacking a slate like this where there it's from an individual ownership perspective is is pretty spread out um, but that being said the ownership that will be concentrated will be concentrated around probably two to three game environments. You know, we've got LA Tampa Bay, we've got um, KC and the Chargers. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And then the Minnesota and Seattle game. Um, when we have three games that are expected to, to grab so much of the ownership on the week, uh, there's obviously a couple of different ways that we can look to attack. What are you seeing with respect to overall big picture macro um, of how to generate leverage with a slate like this, where ownership is more or less pretty spread out. Yeah. So real quick on ownership, I want to know, like we, we expected ownership to be a little more spread out this week. Um, and it is last week there were, I think at the end of the week, there were something like seven guys projected for over 20% ownership. Um, this week there are three. 
uh, as I'm seeing it right now. And so, you know, that tells us it's, it's not about the individual numbers. It just tells us at a high level, like we're seeing a little more spread out. So that makes me less concerned about ownership of individual plays. And I start tending to dig into uh, ownership of teams and games. Like what, you know, where is the field sort of exposing itself? God, that's a horrible phrase. Um, but where is the field like trying to get a lot of exposure? You know? Go ahead. No, sorry. I was throwing in a joke there. Sorry. A la Todd. <laughs> that was a, uh, that was poor timed. Anyway. Joke. <laughs> no. uh, yeah, it was, uh, I threw a giggity in there, uh, but anyway, I digress. We digress. Yeah. And I kind of am, am seeing things in the same light this week. You know, I'm less concerned about ownership. You know, I'll, I will likely have a good amount of those top three wide receivers. Uh, you know, all, all the players above 20% expected ownership this weekend are all wide receivers, Cooper cup, Chris Godwin and Robert Woods. Well, when you start looking at um, the composition of the slate and then particularly the composition of the, you know, expected game flow of that game, well, it, it sets up very well for those three players. So when we made the kind of transition in the end around from good chalk, bad chalk to some more new age ideas uh, that I explored in this year's uh, course, I'm not going to really jump too far into that idea, but I made the transition because we really need to be thinking about chalk in a more macro sense other than is it a good play or is it a bad play as opposed to like, what is this doing to the field's rosters and what is this doing to our rosters? Well, when you look at the, the, the you know, perceived quote unquote chalk when there, there isn't a lot this week, we start to realize that a lot of the rosters are going to be built in a similar fashion, but not with similar players. And that next leads us to, well, can I leverage that smartly from a roster construction standpoint? And that was one of the questions in um, the Oracle this week was, you know, does on a slate like this, does the stars and scrub approach or does forcing some, you know, value players, players under 5k ish in salary, does that gain any, any weight? Um, does that smartly create leverage on a slate like this? And the answer is always going to be, well, it depends. And for this week specifically, I think you're actually seeding a little bit of expected value. If you're forcing, uh, some value plays that might be suboptimal. So definitely interesting dynamic to this slate. And the way that, or I guess to reiterate, you know, what you said earlier, the, the way that I view the highest EV way of attacking this slate in particular is leveraging roster construction through attacking games smartly in a different way than the field is. I put an example in the end around, which was the, um, the Detroit and Baltimore game where I Although I expect some ownership on that game, it's, it's likely going to end up maybe the fourth or fifth highest owned game. But the field is is likely not going to be one game stacking it, you know, playing to a high scoring affair. The field is two likelier to be selecting one offs from that game. So again, just thinking through the slate overall, it we want to be steering ourselves to trying to view ways where we can smartly and logically put together rosters in a way that the field is not, but not by making those suboptimal plays. 
that was long-winded. Hopefully that came together uh, as it did in my head. What do you think about those thoughts, X? Yeah, I agree. Um, I think the there are a couple clear like va- clear value plays the field is going to congregate on based on the ownership projections I'm seeing. Uh, we can expect like KJ Osborne and um, <clears throat> and who else? Nicole Hardman. It looks like to be pretty highly owned. Um, but so the trick there is like if you embrace that construction, uh, you're getting into either a leaning on some fairly thin value plays, right? Like the wide receiver three role in Minnesota has not historically been a prolific one. Um, Michael Hardman's a very boom bust player. And those are the kind of plays I like to play at low ownership, not high ownership. And so either you're either you're leaning on those guys and landing yourself in a very similar construction overall to the field, or you're leaning on even thinner value plays. Um, There's no one that really stands out. Like there's some guys under 4K I think you can include in your player pool, but there's no one who's like, this gets a smash play and no one's going to play him. So I agree that the four stars scrubs is a suboptimal way to build. Um, I I think the game environment uh, approach is much more robust because there are a couple of games that look like they're going overlooked significantly, right? Baltimore, Detroit is one. Um, Lore projects is the highest on quarterback, um, and TJ Hawkinson's going to capture a lot of ownership. But outside of that, like people aren't really playing many guys from that game. The wide receivers are almost unowned. Uh, Swift and Tyson Williams are low owned. And then, um, what's the other game? Uh, Atlanta at Giants, I think, is I'm with, I saw your comment in the end around. I kind of buy it. Like you said something about that you thought Saquon Barkley's ownership projection looked low, and I agree. I think he's going to be one of the top three or four RBs on the weekend in ownership. Um, but again, similarly to the other game, to the, the Baltimore Lions game, no one's going to be stacking that game. And the wide receivers have near zero ownership, like, you know, Galladay, Slayton are projected at sub 5%, uh, Kyle Pitts under 10%, Calvin Ridley around 10%. So, you know, you can get leverage there in building around that game instead of building around one of the chalk games and then having a one-off uh, from, you know, from one of those other two games that Hilo and I are talking about. Instead, you go to build co- build your core lineup around one of those games and then take a one-off from, you know, Bucks Rams or a one-off from Seahawks Vikings. Yeah, exactly. And then um, another way to smartly do that is who's going to be playing, you know, a Matt Stafford, Cooper Cup and Robert Woods stack and then bringing it back with Chris Godwin or Mike Evans. Like, Attacking a game environment that has a chance to outperform both ownership, expectations, projections, all that, you know, everything, the macro that goes into trying to project the weekend, really, the slate. If if you bet on a game environment that, you know, to outperform those projections or outperform public perception or, you know, the list goes on and on. There are ways to do that smartly to bet on a bet on only one outcome having to go your way as opposed to, you know, guys who are taking onesie twosies from the LA Tampa Bay game. Like, you know, the Cooper cup is probably going to be paired with Chris Godwin, a good deal. And they're, they're basically narrowing what has to go right. Or I guess I should say they're expanding what has to go right. Um, as opposed to narrowing it down to a single point. And I tried to, I tried to, reference that thought process in the end around this weekend and provide a little bit more teaching to where we want to, you know, the, the basic tenets of, of stacking or of, of playing to a game environment is you you're lowering the number of things that has to go right for your roster to succeed. Well, the 
that's still a large area where I feel the field is not placing a heavy enough emphasis and it's more, um, correlated onesie twosies, you know, the example I just used Cooper cup and Chris Godwin. Well, that's still a, a very specific outcome or game flow and game script that has to go right for you. Even for that, you know, seemingly highly correlated little two player game stack to work out in your favor. If I guess I, to, to reiterate or to highlight that thought process again, using the, the Detroit and Baltimore example, um, really the example I used in the end around was, you know, TJ Hawkinson and Swift paired, uh, with their quarterback. And that is basically capturing a large portion of the expected fantasy point output from Detroit, obviously with the COVID stuff going on with the defense, uh, in Baltimore, that has a higher likelihood chance now of success of succeeding for your rosters. And then you start thinking about the correlated bringbacks. Well, the most optimal in my mind from that game is to bring it back with Tyson Williams, because now you're capturing multiple different game flows that could bring that game stack success. You know, what are other ways to do it? Other ways to do it would be um, choosing another highly owned or expected highly owned game. Um, Take Kansas City and the Chargers, for example. Well, how many people are are going to play both Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey? You know, that's just an example, and it might not be optimal this week. But how how many people are attacking that game uh, in that type of fashion and saying that that game is going to score 60, 65, 70, maybe combined points between these teams? And Kansas City is such a concentrated offense that those points are likeliest to flow through Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey basically matchup be damned, right? Because we can almost assume that Kansas City is going to find success on any given week. So finding these these nuanced plays, these nuanced ways to attack games in ways that the field is not, I think is going to bring us our highest expected value uh, in a week like this. Can I chime in a note? Um, you mentioned Tyson Williams, and there's an added perk there as, as he, with him as your bring back. Um, with Lamar as the highest end quarterback of the week, when Lamar smashes, he smashes because he gets rushing touchdowns. And so the clearest leverage off of a Lamar smash is expecting the touchdowns come through the running backs and not Lamar. Um, so you get that benefit. I also want to touch on yeah. the Rams a little bit. Um, this is a similar situation to last week kind of in some ways. Um, last week, we had like projected roughly 50% Rams ownership. No one was on Stafford. Stafford was like 3% owned. Um, no one was on the Colts. Uh, and so, you know, last week, what the, what the field was essentially saying with the positions they were taking on the Rams, they were trying to thread a very thin needle of basically saying this game doesn't go off. It doesn't turn into a shootout. It turns into a, you know, Rams win and one Ram has a good game and I can, I can successfully predict who that is. And it turns out it was the highest on one, right? Cooper Cup had the game of his career and made me look like an idiot. Um, but in this week, it's kind of similar in that we're seeing much higher ownership on the three core wide receivers, Cup, Godwin, Woods, uh, lots of ownership on Higby, some on Gronk, some on Evans, right? But we're not seeing a lot of ownership on the QBs. So we're saying, we're seeing again, the field is kind of trying to thread that needle of paying the right receiver or the right two receivers from that game, but not betting the game actually really goes off. And it's really hard to get that exact middling right where not only does the game only produce one or two good scores and not three or four, in which case if the game produces three or four good scores, then the game stack beats you. 
uh, if you only have one or two guys from it, if the game goes nuts. And if the game fails, then you get no good scores. Uh, so you're saying that the game's only going to produce one or two good scores and I can pick the right ones. And that, that like to me, that's an approach I generally don't like taking because it's just trying to thread this needle very, very fine. Um, where it's, you know, I can guess the exact number of good scores to come out of this game and I can guess exactly who's going to produce them. Like, I kind of prefer to go all in or all out in those kind of situations. Um, and that's the approach I took last week, which killed me. Um, but it's an approach I will happily take again. Yeah, and that, that goes back to, you know, one of the first things we talked about on this podcast was playing with conviction. Um, if, if you see a, a situation to exploit or that is plus EV over a, an, an X amount of slates or, you know, an X amount of sample size, um, I, I would be wanting to exploit that to the full ex, fullest extent practical, really. Um, and, and I'm not afraid to do that as well. I, I had a terrible week last week. We went over on the Todd pod, uh, which I'm calling it now, um, the early week reflection podcast with Todd. Um, and I, I had 11 lineups and I did not cash even a single one. And again, I was as bold to say that I, I wouldn't change anything from my process that week. And that was simply a case of identifying a plus EV situation and attacking it. And over the long run, that will pay off as opposed to um, I would much rather swing and miss and give myself a higher probability chance of a first place as opposed to playing for, you know, five out of my 11 lineups to min cash, like that, that does nothing for me. So, uh, again, I echo everything you just said, love it. Um, I want to talk real quick or transition us to another kind of roster construction funnel that I see this week. And that is with these two running backs that DraftKings is basically daring us to play. Clyde Edwards Hilaire at 4.8 in salary, and then Saquon Barkley at 6.5 salary. Even at any point last season or, you know, the first two weeks of this season, if we saw, if you told me that these two players would be priced where they are in week three of 2021, I would have called you crazy and laughed you off the hill. Uh, but here we are, uh, DraftKings basically daring us to play these guys. And like we talked about earlier, I expect Saquon to carry ownership. Clyde Edwards Hilaire is a little bit all over the place, depending on where you look for ownership projections, but he basically two out of the three sites that I'm looking at for ownership projections, he's coming in with significant ownership. So again, with these two X, what are you seeing outside of basically how it affects roster construction overall? But I'm going to talk a little bit or real quickly. I want to talk about these two plays in particular. How are you handling these two guys this week? Yeah, my God. Um, like, they're both good plays by everything. All the, the rules we know that we apply to looking at plays, right? Like, if you take the players' names out and you tell me Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is a 70% plus snap count, uh, significant home favorite running back uh, who gets past game work, and he's 4,800. That seems like a smash play, right? If you if you take Chiefs and you take his name out of it, the downside, of course, is and even about like is he any good to me? I don't care. Um, to me, what I care about is the Chiefs. Just they don't score rushing touchdowns. Um, they they score passing touchdowns, and so that limits his uh, his upside in my mind. Um, but then again, 
4,800, right? And then Saquon is a guy we're normally used to paying like 8K, 8,500 for. Um, you know, he's also, I, th- I think the Giants are favored. Yeah, they are. So he's a home favorite. Uh, we saw him play over 80% of the snaps uh, in, a th- in a short week in week two. So that tells us we have a high degree of confidence that he's fully healthy. Um, he, he gets pass game work. He's, you know, an elite talent. Um, but then again, the flip side of that coin is we haven't actually seen him be an elite talent in, in almost two years. Running backs have a short lifespan. And so, like, I think you can poke holes in both plays. Um, but, like, on paper, they're strong plays. And so, like, I don't think I'm going to take a position of saying, like, I'm just going to X them out of my player pool or I'm going to lock them. Like, that's not really how I tend to approach <clears throat> roster construction generally. Um, but, God, like, these two guys being chalky is honestly terrifying to me. <laughs> just because, like, because of the factors I point out, right? Like, and I don't want to be, I don't want to belabor the point, but, like, they're both strong plays on paper. But when they're the high, two of the highest owned running backs on the slate, like that terrifies me. And I feel like you can get uh, very similar likely outcomes um, from guys priced around them at significantly lower ownership. So like, I'm probably going to try to be underweight those guys. Uh, and I'm probably going to use a rule in my NME constructions to avoid pairing them together because when they're two of the highest priced guys on the slate or two of the most highest, highest ownership guys on the slate, a significant chunk of rosters is going to have them. Um, <clears throat> And I'd like to, I think that I would, I would put it in my perspective of like, I won't pair them. I'll, I'll play them, but I'm not going to pair them together. Yeah, I like that. Um, I will add uh, another angle, how I'm kind of viewing this situation is <clears throat> realistically, I want every player that I put onto a roster for a GPP to have 30 plus point upside. I'm not going to, it doesn't matter if they're 3K, it doesn't matter if they're 10K, if it's, you know, Christian McCaffrey, Dalvin Cook late in the season, uh, Derrick Henry late in the season. Um, It doesn't matter what the price is. I want every player that I put onto a roster in a GPP to have 30 plus point upside. And when analyzing... not have 30 point upside. What's that? Are you telling me Clyde Edwards-Hilaire does not have 30 point upside? Just because he's never hit it in his career ever? I'm, okay. I I won't say <laughs> I, nothing is ever definite, definitive, I would say. We don't know anything, right? I mean, I've been preaching that all season up to this point. But I would say from the context of this particular slate and this particular Kansas City Chiefs game, I would say Clyde Edwards-Hilaire does not have 30-point upside. No, I'd agree with that. I want to note one thing, too, and we'll get into this later, um, but they both play in the early games. And we're going to talk more about late swap this week because there's a very important late swap consideration that we need to that we need to think about and talk about. Um, and if you lock your running back spots uh, in the early games, you limit your flexibility for adjusting late. And so that's another reason why I wouldn't want to pair them together. Love it. All right, man. You seeing any other like macro funnels for roster construction for this week? Those were the two big ones that were uh, that I identified here. Um. <clears throat> I mean, I can talk about games I like, but that's not really macro. I would say I think it's an interesting week to pay down at QB. And I've actually been on the pay up at QB bandwagon for the last couple of years. Like for a long time, DFS, uh, like sort of DFS common practice was pay down at QB because QB scoring is very clustered. Um, and so everyone got used to paying down. 
And then we have these quarterbacks come on the scene like Josh Allen and Kyler Murray, these rushing QBs who bring enormous ceilings. And so like it's shifted to paying up. Um, and, you know, I'm definitely going to have exposure to the, the, the QBs because they bring unmatched ceilings. But this week to me, there's some there's some cheap QBs who I think aren't going to likely put up the kind of scores that like Kyler can um, or Mahomes can or Josh Allen can. But I think they can come close enough. And on a week without a lot of spectacular value, uh, I think that going cheap at QB um, gets you gets you a lot roster construction wise. And Justin Fields is going to be the people will flock to as the the rookie starter, um, sexy name, big preseason, um, you know, rushing upside. And he's a good play. Uh, but I also like, you know, you've got Jared Goff down there. You've got Trevor Lawrence. You've got Matt Ryan. You've got Daniel Jones. Like, I think there's actually a, a, a plethora of uh, of sub six KQBs who have very realistic 25 plus point upside, like 20 into the 25 to 30 range. And, you know, so as long as you don't have like Kyler hit like 40, uh, if you get 25 or 30 from one of those guys and you free up a lot of salary to avoid some of the value plays people are going to be digging into on a week without a lot of value. I think that differentiates you nicely. Yeah. And I want to highlight something um, that, or I guess, how do I put this? I want to highlight something about those four quarterbacks that you mentioned at that bottom range of pricing that they all share in common. And that is all terrible. No, that is their game (laughs) environment. So we're playing to game environment, right? And all four that you mentioned, Daniel Jones, Matt Ryan, um, Trevor Lawrence and, uh, my boy for this week, Jared Goff, uh, all four of those guys are in plus game environments and that's what we want to be attacking. And so I am totally with you on that, uh, that thought about the quarterback position in particular. Um, I like the pay down this week again, a little bit more than I have to start the season. Um, and a lot of that also has to do with kind of the makeup of the slate overall and people with likely salary uh, to throw around. And I think one of the positions that they're likeliest to do that is at quarterback. So uh, I second that, uh, that notion. I like it. Uh, and that pretty much covers quarterback position as well. So uh, anything else to add at the quarterback position? Nope. Nope. I'm good. Awesome, man. Let's jump over to running back. We talked about um, the two unique cases. Uh, we're going to lump in some, some late, late swap theory here in the running back position as well. Uh, but we talked about Clyde Edwards, Hilaire. We talked about Saquon Barkley, um, other guys at the top, you know, who are expected to garner ownership. And this is, again, is a, another case of how the field is likely seeing this slate with likely, uh, additional salary to throw around Derek Henry. I believe is going to end up in the top four, top five, somewhere around there in ownership. We're likely to see some significant ownership on Dalvin Cook. And that's going to lead us right into late swap because he is uh, that running back situation for Minnesota this week is the place where late swap comes into play this week. Um, You have conflicting reports, depending on which beat writer you're following, which beat writer uh, you ask uh, with respect to Dalvin Cook's ownership. We also have differing viewpoints from different uh, content providers where uh, who also have ownership projections. I won't get into the specifics, but there are some 
ownership projections that are basically assuming that Dalvin Cook will not play. And there are some that are basically assuming that he will play. And that just, I think, goes into having to take a stance either way to get accurate um, ownership projections. That said, how are we handling the situation, particularly with late swap in mind this week? Yeah, so it's tricky to me because one, there's two questions, right? One is, if Dalvin plays, is he a smash play? And the second is, if Dalvin doesn't play, is Alexander Madison a smash play? And those are the two questions you have to kind of think about if you want to like approach the situation intelligently. And so for me, um, Dalvin is a fine play uh, in one of the highest total games of the week. Um, but I, I wouldn't consider him a like smash play, like a, I must play this guy. He should be the highest in running back of the week. Like he's a good play. Um, if he plays, if he doesn't play Alexander Madison, uh, I think there's an expectation that Madison will step into Delvin's role because the Vikings have used Delvin as a, a three down workhorse back. And they're one of the few teams in the NFL that seems to be comfortable going all in on one workhorse back. Um, but Last year, when Dalvin missed, we didn't quite see them use Madison that way. We saw them we saw them use Madison as more of a two down workhorse back uh, with a little bit of pass game work. He wasn't like getting the same kind of target volume that Dalvin was. And so I think it's like this question to me comes down to ownership and strategy more so on like player evaluation and matchup, though. And so like a big thing for me is going to be what's the news look like by the morning? Right. If there's a few ways it could play out, you know, we're going to get an Adam Schefter tweet on this situation almost certainly at some point tonight saying Dalvin's either, you know, expected to play, expected not to play or a game time. If Dalvin is expected to play, what we know there is that means that people will put Dalvin on their rosters. They will not put Madison on their rosters. And then if Dalvin is ruled out after the early games lock, uh, there'll be a lot of people who don't have flexibility to switch to Madison um, if Dalvin is then ruled out. And so that gives us a lot of uh, like that makes Madison a stronger play in my mind because he would come in at much lower ownership. Uh, the inverse is also true. If, Galvin, if Dalvin's a game time decision or Dalvin is somewhat expected to play as he is right now, but you also have some sites taking a stand and saying we don't expect Dalvin to play, then there are going to be rosters that go into the 10 a.m. lock time with Madison on them. And then if Dalvin is active, those rosters are going to have to scramble and those rosters probably can't afford Dalvin Cook. Um, and so they're likely to be going to like afternoon running backs in that same price range of which there aren't many. Um, so either they're going to be trying to make some other changes to their roster in order to get Dalvin in, uh, or they're going to be like pivoting down to Daryl Henderson if he plays. Um, you know, that, that seems like unlikely. Uh, there's just not a lot of other good plays in that range. Like you could argue Kenyon Drake if Josh Jacobs sits, which looks likely. Uh, Chris Carson's a little bit up, a little slightly more than Madison. Um, so that's kind of how I'm thinking about it is it's going to be like how to play that situation depends on what news we have in the morning, like overnight and in the morning about Dalvin Cook. Like if he's expected to pay, um, then you can expect to see Dalvin rosters and then I'll have Dalvin rosters and then you just need to be ready to pivot. But uh, if he's expected to play and then doesn't, that's the that's the biggest plus EV situation in my mind is if he's expected to play and then does not because a lot of rosters won't have the flexibility to swap. Um, and so what I'll be wanting to do in that case is build a lot of rosters that that have that swap flexibility 
And because of the lack of like running backs in that pricing tier in the afternoon games, it's kind of it's challenging. It's, you can't just have sort of a freebie swap. Um, but so I might play like some extra Chris Carson uh, in that case, because Chris Carson, I think, is a reasonable leverage play in a vacuum. Uh, and then I think that he uh, you can swap in Madison easily and get a great leverage play like the best some of the best like late swap leverage is when you get uh that like late rule out um after in 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 the afternoon games and people just aren't they're they're not they're not in a spot to to adjust for it right like so that's kind of how i'm thinking about it is i it's hard for me to make a decision on it right now but i want to make sure that i'll take into account the overnight and morning news and then uh build rosters that have either that have flexibility accordingly i love it dude how i kind of what I will add, I guess, to this situation is how I like to think about a, a very unique situation like like we're presented with this week uh, with really only one late swap situation to really to worry about. But it's a, a, a slate changing one for sure um, is think about it through the lens of an if then statement. You know, my, my computer guys or my programmers will know what that means. But if X happens, then Y. So. If Dalvin Cook plays, then what does that mean for the rosters uh, that are they're bound to be Madison rosters coming into the slate? So what does that mean for the Madison rosters? Well, with there being no clear pivot option at the running back position, they are likely going to have to move Madison rosters up to Dalvin Cook. Then, so that's the if. What is the then? Is where does that salary have to come from and it has to come from the wide receivers from the tampa bay and the uh los angeles rams game that's really the only other spot in the afternoon games where there's expected to be any level of ownership you know the other two games uh outside of tampa bay and the rams and seattle and minnesota are the jets and the broncos and miami and las vegas which are not expected to carry much ownership at all so in a unique situation like that how am i handling my own roster construction, well, I'm going to build dummy lineups for both instances. And a way for my MME folk to do that is to just build a couple, you know, five, six, seven, a handful of your 150 rosters um, with Madison and build a handful with Dalvin Cook, because this is such a, a, a slate altering situation. Um, when you build those dummy lineups, and I, I would lump into um, that, you know, awesome exploration of building duplicate lineups that Sonic talked about last week, um, and approach it in that sense and give yourself, you know, be playing around with builds, um, and rosters now that account for each unique situation. Um, at worst case scenario, if you uh, approach things like this in an MME fashion, at worst case scenario, you have five to seven lineups that are dead. At best case scenario, obviously um, playing both sides kind of in, in this situation. But now you have five to seven lineups that are duplicated that you can now shift some things around uh, and play with with these afternoon games. Goods and bads, obviously. Goods, it's, it's very, uh, a very tight funnel of expected um, one salary and two ownership for this particular situation. Um, and two, also, I would be much more willing to pull pieces in from those other two afternoon games, you know, the Jets and the Broncos and the Dolphins and the Raiders, 
um, into those lineups that I had built with Madison. Um, because one, the ownership is going to be minuscule. Um, and two, they are high leverage, you know, in a vacuum off of those higher owned games. So again, different ways to kind of view the situation. It's, it's highly unique. Um, and just trying to piece together how we would handle each individual case now. So we're not scrambling, you know, if we do get late news, uh, with respect to Dalvin Cook. Let me toss a question your way. I'm someone who almost always, uh, plays wide receiver in the flex. Uh, you could argue in this case, if you're playing Madison uh, pre-lock in a situation where you don't have a lot of news, you could consider playing Madison in the flex because that gives you swappability to guys like Godwin, Woods, um, Cortland Sutton is 6K, right? So there's some there's some direct one-for-one swaps. Uh, if you have Madison in your flex, you can swap into a wide receiver. Are you thinking about that at all? Like, I'm probably not going to build Madison in the flex rosters, but I'm just, it's a strategy angle I hadn't thought about until just now, and I'm curious for your take on it. I am. And we're kind of mind melded because that was going to be the next thing that I brought up was um, the the field basically is is a sharper field than three or four years ago. Well, what does that mean? That means that the field pretty much knows at this point to be playing a wide receiver in the flex because they have wider range of outcomes, yada, yada, higher seeing higher point per dollar ceilings uh, and the list goes on. So one that goes into our understanding of game theory and the idea of common knowledge well if we expect that point of strategy of playing wide receiver in the flex to be common knowledge we can then formulate uh different ways to attack a situation like this where we're pre- presented with a very unique uh and honed in situation and yeah one of the one of the ways that i was thinking about uh, attacking this situation on many MME and MME builds was to play Madison in the flex on three running back builds. If I am playing Madison, and again, I haven't worked out you know what my exposure is going to be yet. That's that's kind of my my Saturday night Sunday morning routine. But yeah, that is that is I think in my mind a a plus EV move. Um, one, you get uh, leverage from the field if we assume that the field knows not to or not to play running backs in the flex uh being suboptimal and and two leveraging the the unknowns with that situation so yeah yeah i i definitely have been throwing that around in the old noggin love it thank you yeah i haven't actually dug in yet i haven't been looking yet this year to see so far you know digging apart like tournament rosters and seeing what percent play wide receiver versus running back versus tight end into the flex i i imagine you're right that we're seeing wide receiver climbing year over year um which i think is i think is broadly correct um but i'm curious how quickly the field is adjusting to that reality yep uh yeah and that is that is an assumption and and part of part of game theory is basing how we attack something under the premise of assumptions um and that that, that's actually a, a large part of game theory that I think a lot of the field really doesn't understand. Um, and that's, you know, placing things into, um, into buckets of, is this common knowledge, which is, I know this piece of information. And I also know that everybody else in this game knows this piece of information. So that is common. It is a commonality between everybody in the game, formulating how we attack um, a, a slate or whatever the game may be with those different, you know, whatever fits into the bucket of common knowledge. If we place something or remove something from that bucket, it fundamentally affects how 
we would build an optimal strategy to attack that game. So, uh, yeah, that's, it's definitely, that all lies within the theory realm. Um, and I don't have the raw data either, uh, to be able to look and make, um, a conclusion, uh, but that would be just an assumption. Professor Hilo, ladies and gentlemen, I love this stuff. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. That comes from my law degree that I got when I was bored. I'm just kidding. Somebody said that in discord, I think, uh, at the (laughs) beginning of the year and I had a chuckle. I had a chuckle. All right. So that is the macro look at the running back position. We covered the, the, we dare you to play them guys. We covered the, um, the obviously big one with Alexander Madison and Dalvin cook. Um, without getting into individual plays, is there anything else you're seeing from the running back position this week? Uh, I will note three things here. One is Derek Henry. Uh, was like three or four percent owned last week, and this week he's going to be one of the highest owned running backs in the slate. Uh, that is, he's a good play. Um, but I will note that the ownership is driven, and the ownership and popularity is clearly driven by recency bias. Um, you know, he was not much worse of a play last week, uh, but no one wanted him, and then he has a huge game, and now everyone wants him. Um, so I think he's still a fine play. But I think for me, at least, the way I'm going to play Derrick Henry is I'm pretty sure on all of my Derrick Henry rosters, I will bring a Colt back. And that's not because I think Derrick Henry can't smash unless the Colts keep up, right? He's a, he'll, he can smash regardless. Um, that's just a strategy decision because the Colts are projecting for almost no ownership at all, but we know Tennessee's defense is pretty crummy. And so that's a way to just in, ensure that on my Henry rosters, I get something that takes me away from uh, the way the other Henry rosters are going to build. The second point I want to call out is Najee Harris is essentially the same play this week as he was last week. The Steelers are again home favorites. Najee Harris again has the same workload expectations. Um, Najee Harris is coming in at half the ownership of last week. So, you know, there's still questions about the Steelers overall offense, but we also have Deontay Johnson out. And I think that Najee Harris's expected pass game role had not quite materialized uh, yet because the Steelers have been using Deontay Johnson in that sort of short area pass role that normally a running back would would occupy. And with Deontay out, I think we're likely to see, I mean, that Juju will run the slot, right? Juju will get some of that short area work, but they're taking away one of their primary short area weapons. And so I think that opens up more pass game work for Najee. So you're getting kind of the same play. It's a slightly tougher matchup, but that's offset by Deontay Johnson missing. Um, You're getting it at half the ownership. And then the third thing I want to say is, I think it's likely, especially if Dalvin is ruled in, we're going to see just a lot of builds that have a pay-up running back. And, and I'm actually including Austin Eckler in the pay-up tier, like the 7K plus tier for this week. There's not a lot of super expensive plays, but like you've got Henry, uh, you've got Dalvin if he's in, you've got Eckler. Uh, people will be on Kamara, just even though it's a, it's a nightmare matchup, um, but he still has a, he's still Kamara, he still has a high ceiling. Um, so there's going to be a lot of like expensive running back ownership. And so I think that an easy way to differentiate uh, is just to play two mid-tier running backs. And you just you just hope that none of the you know you're, all you all you need for that to work is for none of the top guys to go completely nuclear, right? As long as no, as long as no top end running back scores like over thirty, uh, you you can be viable with a mid-tier strategy. And that just again just kind of gets it's an easy like it's an it's an easy tool to get you off of the common construction. Yep, off the CEH as well. I love it. That is what one of the big pieces of leverage that I highlighted in the end around. I am attacking the slate in a similar fashion. My parting shot, and I'm glad you mentioned this, my parting shot for the running back position was going to be Najee Harris. So I want to I talk a little bit about that play. 
um, from both on a paper and the leverage that can be created. So one, obviously he falls in that mid tier of running back that we already talked about. So that's a check in the leverage box. Two, he's $100 in salary more than a likely high-owned Saquon Barkley. When you look at a comparison of these two players, and again, I, I, we, we're trying not to get into specific plays too heavily in this podcast, but this has a lot of, of overarching theory and roster constructor, construction, yep, I'll call it, uh, kind of behind the scenes. So I want to talk real quick about this situation. So that's two pieces. He's in the mid-range. He's $100 more than Saquon Barkley. What is different? And I, I pulled up one of these, you know, what is different comparative things last week with Damian Harrison and Chris Carson. Well, this is the one that pops out to me this week. What is different between Saquon Barkley's situation and Najee Harris's situation? Both are playing now heavy snap rates. Both are running behind probably the two worst run-blocking offensive lines in the NFL this year. Both are expected to have some level of pass game involvement, um, and both uh, both of their team uh, Vegas implied team totals are you know within a couple of points. The big difference here is ownership or expected ownership. There's really not much else that is different from an on paper you know analytical how we're seeing this situation. The other thing with that is. When you're looking at the Pittsburgh offense overall, they are utilizing Juju Smith-Schuster in the slot at a heavier rate and it basically an extreme short field role. His average depth of target is something like 4.4 or 4.6 yards, uh, which is extremely short. And Deontay Johnson's is up in you know, the still short eights. So he's, he's somewhere in like the mid eights for average depth of target. So when you're looking at how things have changed year to year, well, Juju has really taken on more of that short role while Deontay Johnson is kind of being used everywhere within 10 yards, kind of, you know, he's being used behind the line of scrimmage. He's being used in the, you know, short slants, short crossing patterns, and he's being used in, you know, intermediate curls and not really too much, you know, double moves or goes. So when we look at Najee, we have to like kind of read the tea leaves and figure out, are we finally going to see Najee schemed usage in the past game? And my answer is I have no clue. And I don't think anybody, I think somebody would be blowing smoke if they, if they said that they knew with a high level of very high degree of certainty that they knew how Najee Harris was going to be used this week with Deontay Johnson out. What I will say with that situation is this is, you know, if it were ever going to happen, this would be it type deal uh, with Deontay Johnson being ruled out. They take away one of the the main pass catchers and the, he has the most targets on the team through two weeks. He had the most targets on the team out of his healthy games last season. This is one of the main guys on this offense. And you start thinking, who is we know Pittsburgh's going to be passing? Who is going to be seeing these targets? Well, we don't know. But it's a high likelihood in my mind that Najee sees some scheme usage in the past game this week. So that is a plus for me on top of all the leverage that is gained off of Saquon Barkley. Uh, that is a plus for me for Najee Harris this week. That was a lot. You got anything to add on this situation? No. <laughs> I, mean, I think right. you're right. Like, I'll say like, we can't predict what's going to happen this week, right? Um, I can't predict if Kyle Pitts is going to blow up this week. I can predict 
that you know Najee Harris is going to have more pass game involvement throughout this year he's shown so far. And I feel a high degree of confidence in that assessment. When that happens, I don't know. You know, like, is it this week? Is it next week? Is it six weeks from now? No clue, right? Does Kyle Pitts have his blow-up game this week, next week, six weeks from now? Again, no clue. Um, but I think things, you know, I think those things are coming. And historically, uh, it's, it's more profitable to be early than late, right? I'd rather be on those things before they happen than after they happen. Yeah, for sure. I love it. All right, let's jump over to the uh, wide receiver position. Basically, we covered how the, you know, the macro ideas of how we see the field handling the wide receiver position. We're likely to see heavy ownership on the aforementioned three uh, heaviest expected ownership games. Um, and that, that ownership is primarily going to be concentrated through the pass game um, with uh, Tampa Bay and the Rams, Seattle and Minnesota. Um, and Kansas City Chiefs and uh, the or, and the uh, Chargers. Jesus. Um, with that in mind, how are you seeing the wide receiver position? How are you handling it? Are you building primarily through game stacks? Talk to me a little bit about how you're seeing this position this week. I just first want to know, I've been waiting to talk about Quintus Cephas, your boy, ever since you mentioned the Detroit-Baltimore game. Uh, <laughs> like He's actually a punt wide receiver I like this week. Um, he's been the leading wide receiver for the Lions, and I'm surprised you didn't mention him because I know how much you love him. Um, as far as how I think about the position as a whole, like I have a hard time personally with wide... like Receiver is the most volatile position, right? Receiver is more volatile than quarterback, more volatile than running back. Um, of the skill position player, right? DST is the most most volatile. So I have a hard time embracing uh, large amounts of wide receiver chalk. Like I'm okay playing a chalky wide receiver. Um, you know, I'm okay playing two chalky wide receivers, but at a highly volatile position, like that's where I want to make sure I'm differentiating. Um, so at a high level, I will say uh, I, I like the chalky wide receivers this week are inevitably to me good plays, like a good play in a vacuum. Um, DFS has gotten fairly sharp at this point at identifying, you know, plays that are good in a box. And, you know, the days of like the days of objectively horrible chalk, uh, it happens occasionally, but it's pretty rare nowadays. Um, and so I'm not going to try and poke holes in like, is Cooper Cup a good play? Is Chris Godwin a good play? Right. They're good plays. Um, but what I will try to do on my rosters is just ensure that like, if I have these high owned white receivers on a roster, uh, I will make sure that I also have some lower owned wide receivers paired with them so that I'm not, I just, I don't want to have like the four chalkiest guys on our roster. I'll be wide receivers because that's just a lot of variance for me to embrace. Um, I also think that from a strategy standpoint, um, I think that wide receiver is where people tend to get most of their value. Um, and I'm seeing like a lot of ownership on cheaper wide receivers, you know, like uh, Osborne, Hardman, um, Boyd is is coming in pretty highly owned. Lavisca Chenault. So like, there's a lot of sub five k wide receiver ownership. And so again, in sort of a there's a simple lever you can pull here, which just says don't play a wide receiver under five k. And the way you achieve that is by going for that mid range running back build. Um, and so I think that that's an interesting like construction angle to take. Um, but other than that, like. Generally speaking, I like to try and use my game stack, uh, my game stack exposure to get um, usually three pass catchers out of the way. Because again, that's the most—they're the most volatile and the most 
like receivers and tight ends are the most um, exposed to game environment. Running backs uh, are, are tend to be more game environment. I don't want to say immune, but less less touchy to game environment. Um, you know, Najee Harris can smash, or Derrick Henry can smash, and running backs can smash uh, without necessarily being a you know needing someone smashing coming back the other way. Right, wide receivers tend to be more sensitive to the over the game environment in which they're operating because teams tend to dial up the passes in shootouts when they're behind late, et cetera. And so I try to get like three wide receiver spots or, or two wide receiver spots in my tight end out of the way in my game stack so that I'm not trying to pick as many uh, as many 1Z, 2Z wide receivers, the floating plays to go along with them. So that's how I approach it generally. If that's if that answers your question. <laughs> I was also kind yeah. of rippling. No, no, no. I love it. Um... One thing I'm going to add is something I wanted to highlight with respect, particular respect to the expected ownership of the wide receivers on the same team in these expected highly owned games. Coming into the week, I expected Tyler Lockett to basically double DK Metcalf's ownership. I expected Cooper Cup to basically double Robert Woods's ownership. And I expected Chris Godwin to basically double or more Mike Evans expected ownership. And what I'm seeing across the industry is that isn't the case where typically um, with these three wide receiver pairings in particular, we're seeing like a three to 4% ownership Delta uh, between those three pairings. And one thing from a strategy point that I want to highlight when that is the case is the field, I think is becoming a little bit more cognizant of recency bias. One, the field is also becoming a little bit more cognizant of the variance associated with the wide receiver position. And if we start again, like I talked about putting assumptions into the common knowledge bucket, well, then that leads me to really weight those decisions a little bit less and tie those more into what is like talking from a single entry and three max mindset that basically wants me to just play what the better play on paper would be if we're less concerned about ownership. You know, the better play on paper is Cooper Cup from the Rams. The better play on paper is Chris Godwin from uh, the Bucks. So I guess all of that is to say is if the field is becoming more aware of recency bias, the fact that wide receiver position is high variance, then I'm going to weight those decisions or I'm going to mix those into my decision matrix at different varying weights. Um, Hopefully that came across clear because that's a kind of intricate theory to, to talk through. Yeah, it totally did to me. What I, what I think you're saying is in the olden days of DFS, even just a couple of years ago, uh, you would commonly see the top projected wide receiver at like, or, or the guy who just had a big game at like 2x the ownership of like the wide receiver two on the team. The field was essentially saying uh, that we can, with a very high degree of accuracy, predict uh, what, not just is this team going to have a good game, is this passing offense going to have a good game, but which player is going to have a good game. And that's the hardest part, right? We We cannot predict that with a high degree of accuracy. Uh, for the vast majority of of offenses out there. And now we're seeing the field somewhat recognize that it's hard to predict that. And I I think what I'm hearing you saying is you think that the field might be sort of overreacting the other way. And so they're just kind of playing them somewhat equally. And you can get, you know, like Cooper Cup should be higher owned than Robert Woods. Chris Godwin should be higher owned 
than Mike Evans here, right? Like, and so you're saying that you can get the better play at very similar ownership. And so now that like the leverage has inverted. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Yeah. And if you look at, if you, if you break it down to like an equation, I, maybe talking numbers will, will highlight it better than my words can. Um, but if you, if, if Cooper cup is 70%, we'll say just using round numbers, if Cooper cup is 70%, uh, more likely to, or I guess likely to score more points than Robert Woods in a given sample of one game, but the ownership comes in at, you know, 53, 47, you know, if they're, if they're close to 50% split ownership, but one player clearly has a better chance of scoring more points, well, then the EV is now on the better on paper play in Cooper Cup. That wasn't the Mm -hmm. case two years ago, a year and a half ago, where the ownership delta made that equation, you know, opposite or flip-flopped. But it, if, if the assumption is that the field is smarter and they're now um, realizing this, well, our next step is to realize that they're realizing it and adjust accordingly. And that might be, you know, we, we, do, we have a very small sample to, to go on, but that might be the case moving forward and theory would then suggest placing that into the bucket of assumptions of common knowledge and now basing a strategy off of new information. And that would be playing the better on paper play if he's coming in with similar ownership. Yeah. Effectively, you're saying that the field, the field continues to evolve, right? The game of DFS continues to evolve. Our understanding of it continues to evolve. And that if we want to be successful, we need to continue to evolve our knowledge and our strategy. Yeah, exactly. And because, you know, again, I'm, I'm hammering on, on game theory here, but like game theory, your, your, um, your, how you're going to formulate your most optimal plan of attack for a given game is always going to be a moving target because one, the it's, it depends on field size. It depends on what is assumed as common knowledge. It depends on all these different factors and that's never going to remain consistent. So it, the the challenge is identifying these trends before the field does, and it typically it takes a season, a season and a half for the field to identify these things. Um, you know, we saw it last year with running back in the flex. Well, that's I think changing now, um, but it took a, a season, a season and a half to do. Well, you know, what if this is the next thing that is changing? And obviously, we need more data points. But if we if we build a you know X amount of our rosters around that assumption then we are now ahead of the field again. So yeah, yeah, totally. And that was me working through all these thoughts as well, kind of out loud. Um, so you can kind of see the process that goes into game theory thoughts and decision-making. Yeah, that was awesome. That was like, that was tremendously valuable. I also want to note though, that uh, don't assume this is a given everywhere for every team and in every situation. Feel like look at ownership specifically by team if you're interested in using and like in having exposure to a team's offense like what hilo said is true for the rams uh for the bucks for the seahawks for the vikings um it's less true for some other teams like uh if you're interested in that atlanta new york giants game uh sterling shepherd is projected for like three or three x or more the ownership of kenny galladay and darius slayton uh if you're interested in that uh jags um cardinals game uh, LaVisca Chenault and um, what's his name? Uh, Marvin Jones Jr. are projected at quite high ownership with Marvin 2x LaVisca and then DJ Chark, who is like 
I don't know, he's in like the top few of the NFL in air yards uh, is, is way, way below. And so don't just assume the field is always doing this, right? Go look, um, go look at the projections and see, because in some cases the field is sharply adjusting to, um, to, you know, the variance of the receiver position, but in others, uh, and especially in the, I think it's it's more likely in the sort of tertiary games where the field is like most players aren't putting as much thought into, you know, Atlanta, New York Giants as they are into like Tampa Bay Rams. Um, like where they're not putting as much thought into it, you can often find some areas where the ownership from one receiver to another is much more significantly different than it probably should be. Yeah, I think you nailed it with the the high vis games or the perceived uh, highest you know game or best game environments. Uh, I think you nailed it right there. Love it. Anything else on the add? I'm stumbling. Anything else to add on the wide receiver position? I'll just say, I think it's really weird to me that Tyree Kill is projected for lower ownership than Michael Hardman. Like that just like, I just keep seeing that. And I'm like, what is going on? Like Tyree Kill, uh, I think it's going to vary from projection system to projection system. But Terry Kill has uh, probably, you know, a top two projection on the slate, right? It's it's going to go back and forth between him and Derek Henry. Dalvin Cook might be in the in the mix there as well if he plays. And Tyree Kill is coming in at actually quite low ownership for a player of his ceiling. Um, and especially if you consider that Kelsey's going to be matched up against Derwin James most of the game. Yep. Um, yep. Like, I swear, like, there's, there's a couple of like truisms I go back to um, again and again in DFS. And I'm just someone who tries to keep my process simple. So I try I like I like simple rules. And one of those simple rules is play Chiefs at low ownership. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like when, when, when the field is not going to be high on the Chiefs, like this is the probably the best offense in the NFL. And when you can get them at relatively low ownership, like when they're not shocked, like that's the time to be on them. Yep. Love it. No other wide receiver has the ceiling that Tyreek has till Tyreek Hill has. Uh, and you know, especially on this slate with how it, it shakes up. So I love that. Another guy kind of in that same category at the wide receiver position is Stefan Diggs. um, mm-hmm. you know, perceived difficult matchup, but, and, and even too, that he hasn't, um, he's been seeing like short to intermediate work this year, primarily. And what, one stat that really blew my mind when I was researching this week, um, was, uh, the average depth of target for Josh Allen is like bottom five in the league right now over two games. And that's, that just blew my mind because they were so adept at the downfield game last year. Uh, anyway, um, that is another guy, you know, whose ceiling and range of outcomes does not match the expected ownership this week. So yeah. I love it. I mean, as, as always, right. Look, look for guys with the sleep breaking upside when they're not being played. Uh, you know, Derek Henry was the was a great example last week, and, and I think I mean we, I think we even mentioned him on our show, not in, not in a lot of detail, right? But like, you want to there's nothing to point to. There's nothing in the matchup to point you to Derek Henry, which is why he was like three or four percent under whatever he was, right? But like, there there are a small handful of players in the NFL who have like legitimately slate breaking. You know, can put up a score that if you don't have it, you cannot win a tournament, and there aren't that many of those guys. Um, you know, it's like Tyree Kill, Devontae Adams, Derek Henry, Christian McCaffrey, um, you know, Diggs might be in that list. I don't know for sure if Diggs is in that list, but he's close, you know. But like when you when you get one of those guys at low ownership, like that's the time to be on them. And then inevitably it happens. And then afterwards, everyone's like, oh, my God, he was going to be solo owned. Why didn't I play him? Of course, he has that giant ceiling, like people were saying about Henry last week. And I don't know if it's going to be Diggs this week. I don't know if it's going to be Tyreek this week, but um, 
but multiple times throughout the year, we see some guy in a you know perceived difficult matchup uh, and, and just put like a 40 plus up. And then everyone's like, oh my God, he's an elite player. Why didn't I think to play him? Yeah, and, and talking a little bit about Stefan Diggs in particular, again, his first two games were against Pittsburgh and Miami, who have two of the at least top five secondaries in the NFL. Now they get Washington, who is no scrub in the secondary, but uh, they are not in the same tier as Miami and Pittsburgh. And Stefan Diggs, 13 and eight targets. Uh, obviously, he's been working the or majority of his targets have been short area of the field, but that is not um, something that I would expect to be sticky. So he's a, a guy that I think is, you know, one of those low owned slate breakers as well. Another guy that I think could be uh, this week from the wide receiver position is AJ Brown and the leverage mm-hmm. that he creates uh, is unmatched pretty much on the slate. Uh, if I can throw it, actually, uh, this is another one of those situations where the field is not waiting receiver outcomes equivalently is Julio Jones. Um, who is roughly one tenth the ownership of AJ Brown, according to what I'm seeing? It'll probably be closer than that at the end. Um, but you know, Julio is the same price as AJ Brown, and so people are going to want to play AJ Brown over Julio. He's the better play, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, the Tennessee the Titans pass game gives you leverage off Henry, um, and it gives you leverage off equally or equivalently priced, uh, much more highly owned wide receivers in other games, and you can get AJ Brown or Julio at pretty low ownership for players of their caliber. Love it, man. Anything else to add wide receiver? Uh, I don't think so. No, I will say like, I actually toyed around with seeing like, and I, I, you know, I play around with a lot of different builds throughout the week. I tried to play around with like, can I make a build with three wide receivers, 5k or under that I love? And this week I couldn't do it and watch this week. That's going to win a tournament, right? Um, but like, yeah, I couldn't do it this week. I, I, all the white, all the cheap wide receivers feel too fragile to me to go like all in there. So like, I mean, if you want to, if you want to take that as an angle that you think you can get a lot of differentiation from the field, like you will get a lot of differentiation from the field. If you play three cheap wide receivers and then spend up everywhere else. Um, that's not, that's not the angle I'm taking this week, but again, like, but those are the kind of things you should be looking at as you think about like, what's the field going to be doing and how do I build a roster that's full of good plays, um, but is different than the field? Like, I think it's, I think it's viable. It's not the approach I'm going to take, but I, th- I think you can make a case for it. Love it. All right. The let's finish it up with tight end and flex, and then we'll take some questions. The tight end position uh, spread out ownership. We're expecting, um, we're expecting TJ Hawkinson to garner ownership. We're expecting Rob Gronkowski to garner ownership. We're expecting Tyler Higby to garner ownership. Kelsey is going to be up there, but basically tight end is from a macro perspective, fairly spread out. So how are you handling this position this week? God, like this is a weird one. Like tight end is so stacked this week. Like every good tight end is on this slate besides Kittle. Um, and I, and I don't count the Philly tight ends because Ertz is back and they just, they, they suck each other's upside when they're in a timeshare, but like, it's weird to see this many good tight ends on the main slate. Like we haven't seen that um, yet this year. And we've got like, you know, the top six guys are like, you've got like Kelsey Waller, Pitts, Andrews, Hawkinson, Higby, Gronk. Um, I keep trying to like make a case to see like, can I go elsewhere from those guys? But that list that I just named, I think is really it for me Um, outside of like always include my tight end in the, quarterback in the pool of game stacks when i'm building around a quarterback 
Um, I'll always include the tight end uh, as, a, as an option to have a little bit of exposure. But like those seven guys, like it's I, I try to think like, can I punt tight end this week? Because that's another really clear way to differentiate is if you could punt tight end um, and you get a good game from like an, I don't know, an Austin Hooper or a Cole Komet, you know, and you get a decent game and you get 15 points from one of those guys or 18 points. Um, but like it's just it's so hard for me to make the case this week with so many strong tight ends on the slate. That like one that that not one of them, not one of the top tight ends is going to have like a twenty to twenty five point or higher game. Um, and if you punt tight end, even if you get a good point per dollar game with like a commit or something like that, uh, I feel like you're still you know you're still behind in a lot of raw points, and you can more easily make up those raw points uh, at tight end if you have the right tight end. Then you like you know you're not getting a lot essentially by going down. Um, you're, if you're if you go down to commit, you get a thousand extra over Higby or whatever, or two thousand extra. Like the receiver, the, the extra projection, the extra benefit you're going to get from paying up more receiver or running back, like isn't worth it to me. So I think it's for me, I'm staying in that range of those seven guys I named. Um, and again, it's Hawkinson, Higby, Kelsey, Waller, Pitts, Andrews, Gronk. Um, of those in a vacuum, my favorite is Pitts because, uh, and I don't know if I'm just dying on this train or whatever, like, or this hill, but like, I feel like I'm playing Kyle Pitsley as a good game, damn it. And if he doesn't have a good game this year, then I'm going to be bankrupt and my wife's going to be furious. Um, but like, I'm on the Pitts train. I, I think he brings the best blend of uh, upside ownership and he's in, he's in one of the game environments that I want a lot of exposure to. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's really hard to make a strong case against like guys like Hawkinson at 5,200 with like the entire middle feet, middle part of the field of the Baltimore defense on the COVID list, you know, Higby's 4k in the highest total game of the week. And he's, I think he's played every single offensive snap for the Rams so far, I believe, um, you know, Kelsey and Waller always bring just unparalleled ceilings and floors. So it's like, it's hard for me to make a case against any of those guys. Um, and I'll have exposed to that seven. And that's going to be my group. Like it's really hard for me to imagine that the top tight end of the week is not one of those seven. Yeah. I'm seeing things the same way. And I think the most pertinent from a theory perspective of why we are saying that is basically what you said about the, the bottom tier having almost a zero chance of outscoring all seven of those players. Right. And, and, on a week like this, on a slate like this, where raw points are going to be much more important to us than point per dollar, uh, that that means a whole lot, you know. From I guess that that carries an extra deal of weight when you're looking at where can I be differentiated or where can I leverage the field, but doing it smartly. And I think that paying down a tight end position this week is not necessarily doing it smartly. And I think you're. Seeing a little bit of expected value so i would agree wholeheartedly yeah. there i would give 10 to 1 odds that the top scoring tight net tight end is is one of those seven guys like i just it's it's hard to see anyone competing with them and you know anyone can have a bad game but when you've got this putt well you have this pile of seven of them all together um if you want you could throw noah fant in i suppose without jerry judy like but I it, probably not for me. I think the other seven are stronger, but like, it's just so hard for me to see the top score coming from someone else. Like, what is it? Maybe a five to 10% chance that happens. We get a top score from someone other than those guys. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree with that. All right, man, that was tight end. Defense is completely all over the place. We have a wide range uh, of salary and projections and ownership projections. 
Um, for me, how I'm defensive position this week is basically just falling back into my routine of selecting defense. And I'm just aiming for a top three score at the position, basically without paying attention to salary and ownership. Um, it's extremely spread out. We have, um, an extremely volatile and wide range of outcomes position. Um, that said my favorite defenses this week, and this is a position where I think we can talk a little bit about the individual plays. Um, my favorite defenses this week are the Arizona Cardinals. Again, pass rush first week offensive line. Um, and then actually Cincinnati all the way down at 2100. Those are my two favorite defenses. I have no objections to either of those other than that they're two of the three highest owned defenses. And I have, and you know, this, this might be, uh, my personal styles, I have a really hard time playing the highest owned defenses due to how much variance is inherent to the position. Um, but I, it's it's hard to object to either of those, right? They're both clearly very strong plays. Um, I'll throw a couple others in there, which I, and I, there's an interesting dynamic here. The Tennessee Titans and the Las Vegas Raiders are both playing against backup uh, corner quarterbacks this this week. They're both home favorites. Um, the Tennessee Titans are projected for about 10 times the ownership of the Raiders. Uh, they're also about $1,000 cheaper. Um, but in my mind, I think that I would I would much rather be on the Raiders defense than the Titans defense. And so it's interesting to me to see that level of ownership discrepancy um, between those two defenses when I think that they're, they're fairly equivalent plays, um, right? They're both going up against bad backup quarterbacks. Um, as, as home favorites where the, the opponent's likely going to be passing a lot. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to like look at defense and thinking like I put those two on my list and I was like, they go, they go in the backup quarterback bucket. Um, and then seeing the ownership difference to me, like that's an area where they're both, they're both reasonable plays, but I think the pay down at defense because defense is volatile has been a bit too, too heavily hammered home on people to where they're flocking to the Tennessee defense at 2,400 and the Cincinnati defense at 2,100. Um, and they're completely ignoring the Raiders defense at 3,400. I like that a good deal. And I was actually toying around with the Raiders as well. Did not make my current single entry and three max builds, but uh, I'm going to explore that a little bit more heavily, I think, because I like that a lot. Uh, what's his name on the outside uh, defensive end for the Raiders? Crosby. He's been playing extremely well this year. Uh, is that, did I get that name right? I forget. Anyway, I don't, I'm not sure my individual <laughs> player knowledge of defensive guys is low. <laughs> uh, yeah, but Miami bottom five offensive line, they're not going to be able to run the ball, which is the optimal way to attack the Raiders that and deep. And now they have a backup quarterback coming in um, with their deep threat coming back to the game. So, uh, yeah, I like that call a good deal. All right, yeah, man, I'll start a couple others if I can. It's really quick. Like, yeah. I just want to know, like, if you want to talk about like defense, you know, we want ceiling and you get ceiling through sacks, turnovers and defensive touchdowns. Right. And and defense is one of those positions where you can have like one team get above 20 points and no other defense on the slate gets above 10. And so, like, I tend to actually put salary aside a little bit when I'm looking at defense, because if you get the right one, the ceiling can just be so much higher than anything on the, any other defense in the slate can match if the slate comes out the right way. Um, and so like, I just want to like, you've also got Buffalo, um, at home against yet another backup quarter. Like what is with the quarterback injuries so far this year? 
Um, but Buffalo gets another backup quarterback. You've got Denver at home against Zach Wilson, who looks like a backup quarterback so far. Uh, you've got New England at home against Jameis Winston, who looks like a backup quarterback so far. Um, so I think that if you if you're if you're hunting ceiling, um, I, I would I would include those three in my MME list. Like I wouldn't those wouldn't be the primary defenses I target on like a three max. Uh, strategy, but like in my MME pool, they're in. And I think Cleveland is probably also in, even though I really like Justin Fields. Like people tend to over um, overestimate the odds of a rookie quarterback making their first NFL start. And, you know, Justin Fields is a, is a talented young quarterback. He's likely going to have a solid career. Um, I'm going to be playing him this week, but there's a, there's a reasonable chance that he just comes out and falls flat on his face in his first start, right? And throws three picks or whatever. So, like, in my enemy pool, like, those other defenses are also in it. I love it, man. Any parting shots before we start uh, taking some questions from Aaron? No, believe so, my friend. Aaron, come on up, brother. All right. Thank you, guys. That was awesome. I'm going to jump into the questions. We're already about hour 15 in, so we'll uh, try to rapid fire these as best we can. All right. Question number one is going to come from uh, Solo. Can you guys go over naked quarterback strategy this week? Want to start or me? Go for it. I'll come in after. Okay. So I actually think the naked quarterback strategy is somewhat overplayed. Um, And I'll explain why. Um, It's overplayed with expensive quarterbacks where we have a hard time picking out where we think the likeliest receiver uh, to hit is going to come from. And so this is guys like Kyler Murray, like Lamar Jackson, um, the real high end of the range. And the reason here is if Kyler Murray is going to have like the kind of game you need from Kyler Murray to justify his 8.3 K salary, like you're going to need like 32, 35 points or more. And Yes, it's hypothetically possible he could rush for 100 yards and two touchdowns, and that's 25 points right there, and then he doesn't get much in the air, and so he doesn't bring a receiver with him. But in all odds, if Kyler Murray is hitting the the high end of his range, he's probably bringing a receiver along with him. Same with Lamar. If Lamar's hitting, you know, Lamar can hit 20 to 25 points in his sleep, it seems. Um, but if he's going to hit the real high end of his range, like that 30, 32, 35 um, or higher, he's going to bring a receiver along with him. And like we actually saw this like just against Kansas City, Lamar put up 37 points. He had 100 rushing yards and two touchdowns on the ground. So 25 points with his with his legs, which is insane. And Marquise Brown still had a, like a tournament worthy game. Um, Kyler Murray, you know, he brought in week one, it was Christian Kirk that he sort of brought along with him in week two, it was Rondale Moore that he brought along with him. Um, so for the high end quarterbacks, I'm actually not likely to play them naked. And I feel like the field plays them naked at a fairly high rate. And so I actually feel like I get positive leverage by playing those guys and pairing them with a, with a receiver, even though it can be tough to find the right receiver. Where I'm okay playing a guy naked is at the low end of the range, because like say with Justin Fields, you don't need 35 points from Justin Fields to feel good about playing him. Like if you get 22 to 25 points off, off of Justin Fields, that puts you on pace for a tourney winning score. And, you know, Fields can get there with like, if Fields gets, you know, 50 rushing yards and a touchdown and then throws for 250 and one more touchdown, that's, that puts him at like 25, 26 points. 
but there's a very reasonable chance that 250 yards and one touchdown do not result in one of his receivers putting up a turn a tournament you know worthy score right if the if the yardage is spread around and no one hits 100 yards uh even Allen robinson could get like you know 80 yards and maybe he gets the touchdown he puts up you know 18 points or 20 points and you're like that's fine but it doesn't help me um so i'm actually so i i do it by price like i'm much more likely to play a cheap rushing quarterback solo uh solo and naked than i am to play an expensive rushing quarterback naked yeah, the only thing I completely agree. The only thing I will add to that explanation is when you play a quarterback naked, you are limiting your outs. So you are playing to a very specific case where the quarterback scores points, but his one of one of his three or four primary pass catchers does not put up a GPP worthy score. And that is a very, very particular case. Last year, there was leverage with playing a quarterback naked. This year, I have seen all kinds of talk, you know, from here to the moon about playing Russian quarterbacks naked. And now you are again into, you know, reverse theory area, that gray area that we have kind of talked to ad nauseum in this podcast so far. So yeah, I think that is an, an overreaction to the field. I think that's something we need to pay attention to and adjust our strategy to moving forward. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, this one's from Ovi. I seem very likely to play three Rams pass catchers in cash, Cup, Woods, and Higby. It seems a little absurd to uh, to do that and go elsewhere at QB, but I probably prefer Herbert to Stafford in that price range and likely prefer Lamar or Fields to all the 6K range QBs. How compelled should I feel to play Stafford given that lineup construction? Well, first of all, I would say it might be time to reevaluate that roster construction if playing it in cash. That is a playing three players from a single game. You're basically saying from a single team and not the quarterback. It's almost, you know, a non-existent chance of providing you. How do I say this? It is suboptimal. From a, from a theory and a roster construction perspective, it is suboptimal, almost regardless of what format that is being played in. The reasoning why that is the case is you are saying, a, you're telling a very particular story with that type of roster construction that has a very low likelihood chance of actually coming to Um, I don't know if that was clear. X, do you... Do you have any amplifying remarks with that? I will say, so I actually, I do stack in cash. And I know that a lot of people don't like to do that. Um, my objective in stacking in cash is that stacking is, of course, about reducing variance and about saying that we can predict game environments uh, with more accuracy than we can predict individual player performance. And so I'm okay. Like, if I were building my roster that way, I would play Stafford because... Like what you're saying, you're saying essentially is my cash roster will sink or swim based on this Rams Bucks game. Like that, that's that's going to determine cash for you. If you have three Rams receivers and the Rams don't have a good game, then even if you have the best quarterback on the slate, you're probably screwed. Right. So I'd rather just play Stafford uh, because the flip side of that coin is what happens if you have three Rams receivers and they they have good games in an, in an aggregate in a player block. But then the quarterback you pick instead of Stafford does not have a good game. Like you could have picked the right receiver block, the right game to sack essentially, and yet still find yourself losing. Um, so 
I would I would very much prefer uh, building and including Stafford in that stack for cash. And again, like it, you're 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 embracing kind of binary outcomes when you stack in cash because you're basically saying I'm going to pick this game to stack around, and if this game disappoints, like I just lose. And uh, other players approach cash from the perspective of I can pick the best individual plays, uh, and, and maybe they won't all hit, but enough of them will hit that will push me over the cash line. My personal preference is I, I think there's less volatility in, in game environments than in individual plays, so I'm happy stacking. Um, but if you're going to take that approach, I would I would definitely include Stafford because you know just go all in, right? Either if you're going to do the stacking approach in cash, I feel like you want to be all in or all out. All right. Next question is from Turkey Day Lover. Uh, if playing a stack on FanDuel or Yahoo of Ryan, Ridley, and Pitts, would you be bringing it back with Barkley? Would that make sense? Uh, it does make sense. It, oh, go ahead. <laughs> sorry. It, it does make sense. Um, and it, it, the one thing that you need to be, I think, I guess the most thing, oh my God. The thing that you need to be worried about when you are picking stacks is one aggregate ownership and two leverage. Um, and coming from a GPP per perspective, that is. So, although Saquon Barkley is going to carry ownership, your three man stack of Matt Ryan, Calvin Ridley, and um, Kyle Pitts is not expected to carry aggregate ownership. So, you you really are less worried about the expected high ownership of Saquon Barkley. So the way, I guess a simpler way to put that is the aggregate expected ownership on that four person game stack uh, is minimal to the point where you should not need to be worrying about taking best play in a vacuum from that game. Now we can debate is the best play from the Giants side uh, in a vacuum Saquon Barkley. Um, but if that is how you are seeing the slate, I see nothing wrong with that. Concur. Um, I will know uh, a useful tool that I use sometimes is we get into this thing of like talking about cumulative ownership, which basically means adding up all of your ownership. And you'll hear things like uh, for tournament, for large field tournaments, you want to keep your cumulative ownership under 100, 125%. And that's a useful enough rule, I suppose, if kind of blunt. But if you know how math works, you will realize that the, the cumulative ownership of two different players uh, is not always is not going to equate to the same ownership the field's going to have. So, like two players who are each twenty five percent owned uh, are going to appear on many many more rosters together than one player who is forty nine percent owned and a second player who is one percent owned. Right, like. Uh, they will appear on far fewer rosters together. So one exercise I sometimes like to do with my stacks it, when I'm my game stacking is I'll take the ownership of like the core stack I'm building and I'll multiply it together, which is actually the more accurate mathematical way to get the ownership that you think the field is going to have. And so if you take the expected ownership of Matt Ryan, Calvin Ridley, Kyle Pitts, Saquon Barkley, uh, multiply that together, and that will give you a percentage. And you can basically say, okay, this is about the percentage of rosters in this tournament that will have this starting roster block. Uh, and it's inevitably, given Matt Ryan's low, incredibly low ownership, especially, uh, it's going to be an incredibly low number. Um, you know, sub one percent for sure, right? I could just, I often talk to be well under one percent. And so at that point, it's like to Hila's point, you know, you can kind of play whatever you want after that. You know, you, you've got tremendously low ownership on your core stack, and so you don't have to worry about ownership on the rest of that roster really at all. You can play, you know, whoever else. It's fine. It's fine from an ownership perspective. 
All right. Next question is from Outlaw Raider. I like to have a small piece of my bankroll and play with large field tournaments, but primarily focus on the 5,000 entries. So when building rosters for different size GPPs, other than looking at consolidated ownership of the rosters, what are some recommendations on how to best evaluate whether A, your small field lineups are too contrarian and B, your large field lineups are not contrarian enough and or C, whether your lineups are too middle of the road to be effective in either. Okay. If I understand correctly, my answer would be it, it is extremely hard to predict that from a forward looking sense. It's extremely hard to say this roster has enough or not enough or just the right amount of leverage or, you know, anything like that looking at a slate when you're building. The only way to evaluate your overall play, how it compares to each field that you're playing against is to evaluate your outcomes. And that is over a, you know, a significant enough sample size to be able to confidently say, I am not accepting enough variance in this particular contest, or I am much variance in this particular contest. And I, I'll give a little bit of a spoiler about how I kind of think about this and break it down in my course from this year. And that is be honest with yourself in your reflection when you are looking at your outcomes. If you are primarily a cash game player and you are bracketing contests, so you're finishing in the top 5% one week and then the next week you're finishing in the bottom 5%, you are likely accepting too much variance for that contest. Conversely, if you're a GPP player, you know, large field type stuff, and you are finishing hovering around the cash line consistently, you are likely not accepting enough variance. And that is something that is a little bit more retroactive uh, in nature and something that is very hard to, to, to take from a, the, the perspective of one particular slate uh, and ask myself, is this enough variance or not? Because it's, it's really unquantifiable. I agree with all that. Um, I will note also, I think, I think there's a perception sometimes around single entry three max. Uh, that you can play it quote unquote safely. Um, and that leads to people in aggregate not taking on enough variance when approaching these single entry three max tournaments, many of which are still quite large. So if you're talking about a 5,000 entry tournament, if you find a 2% owned guy who goes nuts or a 2% owned game stack that's your core, you're still competing with 200 other rosters uh, that, that are built around that way. And if you're trying to get first, like, you, great, you've, you've gone from a much lower chance of winning to a roughly 1% chance of winning, which is better, um, but still, you're still, it's still at 1%, right? So um, I think that a lot of people build for those, those three max tournaments thinking, like, I can play safe, I can just play the best plays, maybe you do, like, one small pivot off of owner, off of, like, the most owned play, you know, I'll change this, this 20% owned receiver to this 5% owned receiver, I'll make this 2v2 and then call it a day. Um, I, I, just, I see a lot of like three max rosters posted um, in our discord and around Twitter and the internet, right? Uh, it's everywhere um, that I feel like they don't take on enough risk for the contest they're in. Um, you know, there's a lot of small three max tournaments that are 100 players. Um, and that's a very, very different environment than a 5000 person tournament, which I would still consider fairly akin to a large field GPP. Um, and I would actually try to personally take on 
um, more risk in those tournaments. Um, because one thing you know with a pretty high degree of accuracy is a lot of the field will not be taking on enough risk in those tournaments, which means the chalkiest plays will be even more highly owned in like a 5,000 entry three max than they will be in the millimaker. So like if Cooper Cup is 25% in the millimaker, he might be 30% or even slightly higher in like a 5,000 entry three max. And so, you know, when you know where the field's going, again, it can kind of change your, it it should inform your strategy. And, you know, you can actually get more leverage oftentimes from being, from taking a more contrarian style in, in those larger um, three max or, you know, or single entry or five max tournaments uh, than you can in like the millimaker. Everything, I want to highlight something real quick. Everything that X just explained is basically 90% of the reason why I focus on single entry and three max as a so-called game theory enthusiast, because the, the amount of the field that is utilizing these concepts is much lower in those contests. Yeah, I experienced that too. And I kind of switched over most of my tournament play. Like I'll still do MME, like I'm doing MME on Yahoo this week. So it's going to overlay again, which we can talk about later as I tout Yahoo. Um, but, you know, I've actually experienced uh, the most success targeting much smaller tournaments, like just a few hundred people, um, because the leverage opportunity is, ama- is amazing. If, you know, if, if a chalk play is going to be 20% under the millimaker and you're thinking, oh, I can get great leverage by, by doing this strategy instead, um, how much more leverage are you getting when that chalk play is 40% owned in a, you know, 200 person single entry tournament? Like you're, you're doubling your leverage possibility. All right. This is going to be last question. Um, I'm going to wrap it up with this one from Jay McGrath here. Do you guys think the chalk build this week changes with the Baltimore COVID news? Will players go with two mid-tier running backs to pay up for the wide receivers? I know we kind of talked about that, but do you think the industry is going to catch up to that, basically? We talked a little bit about the industry catching up to a lot of, uh, a lot of the aspects of DFS theory. I do not think that that is one of them because that game still falls outside of the perceived top three game environments on the week. So, yes, there are going to be onesie twosie players from that game that are going to be owned. You know, Lamar Jackson is going to be owned. TJ Hawkinson is going to be owned. DeAndre Swift is going to be owned. But the overall like game stack aggregate ownership is not going to be. Hex, you want to add anything? I have nothing to that? intelligent to add. <laughs> <laughs> no, we covered it. All right. X, uh, hi, Lou. I'll throw it back over to you, but um, that's we'll end it here. We'll try to always keep it to 90 minutes. Um, I know a lot of people got a lot of building and roster construction to do tonight. And if you guys have uh, future questions, get them in early, drop them in the chat. We'll always uh, try to get to all of them the best we can. But as you saw, Hilo and X were into some really good conversations tonight. So never really want to stop them when they're uh, in deep thought like that. So thanks, everybody, for joining. Hilo, I'll pass it to you for, for an outro. Yeah, parting shots. Um, we have incorporated some of y'all's um, feedback in from the feedback channel into the show. You know, one of them being, you know, cover the cover some of the guys that have the slate breaking upside at low ownership on the week. Um, we we're trying to not pay too much particular attention to individual plays, but that is an area with a of theory behind it that I think is pertinent and came from a suggestion in the feedback. So if you guys have any 
feedback for us, drop it in the feedback. And we are taking uh, that stuff on board and taking it to heart. So we appreciate it. Thanks for hanging out with us. X, my man, that was amazing. And I will look forward to week four, brother. Pleasure as always. And of course, I just want to note two, two final thoughts. One, if you didn't get your question answered, um, I know questions are coming in throughout the show that we didn't have time to get to. Hit us up in Discord. Um, I don't want to commit Hilo here. I don't know what his <laughs> blinds are. Um, but I'm going to go hang out with the family a little bit, have some dinner, put the kiddo to bed, and then build rosters tonight. So I'll be around tonight and tomorrow morning on Discord uh, if you have any other questions. Um, and I also want to note, if you like free money, um, it looks like a near certainty that we are going to have significant overlay in Yahoo's main tournament. Uh, it's got it's 50k entries this week, but it's $20. Last week it was I think like 60 something k entries, and I think it was 10 or 15 dollars, and it only got up to like about 40k. So it's hard to imagine it getting more than that with a higher entry fee. It should overlay uh, Super Draft, um, which we have a partnership with, and can get you a deposit bonus on. Um, if you go to the scroll, you'll find Super Draft strategy articles. Their main tournament has overlaid each week so far, and they're keeping it at the same size. They're, it's a $250,000 GPP. Um, they keep, they're keeping it at the same size despite it overlaying weeks one and week two. Essentially, they're just, it's, it's, it's aggressive marketing for them trying to essentially buy users. Um, take advantage of that stuff, man. There's, there's, little, there's little that is better for your bankroll than free overlay. All right, guys. Thanks for hanging out with us, and we'll catch you guys next week. See you guys. All right. Bye, everyone.